ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Welcome, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm Jeff Maldron, and it is a pleasure be with you once again as the Tennessee stud takes us down that road of wrestling history and now the man himself the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller Ron how you doing today I'm doing great Jeff Uh, glad to be here Uh, looking forward to this one I think we've got a lot of good stuff in here for fans and uh, just uh, ready to do it my man Uh, got old lightning saddled up and ready to go Okay, well, before we uh, get into today's show, Ron, want to remind the good folks out there that once again, the Super Studcast number 24 is now out with Adrian Street. Ron, I got to tell you, it was my first opportunity to, to record a Super Studcast with you. Lots of fun, lots of history as Adrian Street really took me down a road, you know, with, with the British wrestling history and some of his thoughts on that. Very interesting stuff, Ron. Yeah, I thought so too, uh, Jeff. Uh, I really, really loved it. <laughs> be honest with you, the first uh, part one is just fantastic, and we really didn't get into America much. Uh, he's he comes to America at, at uh, you know I think thirty eight years old or something in that somewhere in that range, and and uh, starts another career. And you know he's a pretty amazing human being, and I learned so much myself. Uh, that's why I love these super stud casts. When you do these three hour ones, you you have an opportunity to to really dig deep and uh, you find out things that you don't normally or you wouldn't normally find out. But I really love this one. He is a, a remarkable human, human being, uh, talented, multi-talented. And uh, this one is a really good one. Uh, uh, as Studcast go, it may be one of the best. Yeah. And, you know, Ron, I think yourself and myself both found out that Adrian has been wrestling for something along the lines of 62 years. Yeah. I mean, what a career. And I also want to mention, just for those that might be interested, we also had a chance to ask a few questions to Miss Linda, who was there on the interview with him. So that's something that I certainly want to encourage everyone to take a listen to. So, Ron, where are we going today? Well, we're going to focus today on the last Knoxville card before Christmas night. It's going to be on Friday night, November 28, 1975. The TV that promoted it, including some more classic, uh, going to have some more of those classic original audios from 1975 today. Uh, We're going to talk about the results of these matches and the payoffs for this particular card. And we're also digging into the reason for my idea behind no Knoxville matches in December until Christmas night, which is a very unusual decision to make. 
and uh, what we're actually doing during that month of December that uh, is is building rusting business, so even without rusting in Knoxville. We're going to break down the extremely important results of the annual November rating books of Arbitron and Nielsen that arrived in December at the WBIR television station. Uh, it's a great program. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things, uh, some things that uh, fans probably don't normally get to hear about, especially these uh, Arbitron and Nielsen rating books. So uh, let's start, Jeff. Uh, just jump. I'm going to jump right in on uh, November the 28th, 1975 Knoxville card. We go back to Chilhai Park for this one. The opening match was Bobby Fields against the Superstar. And that match was a result of what happened in the second match of the last Coliseum show. One of my three Welch relatives, Bobby Fields, the son of my grandfather, Roy Welch, his sister. There's three of those sons. Uh, that's why we have the largest wrestling family in history, because uh, there's a lot of males in our family. And uh, so uh, Bobby Fields has come to visit me in Knoxville. He wants to see kind of what I'm doing. And uh, at that that match that he had with a superstar uh, in the Coliseum, the superstar attacked him not once but twice at the end of the match. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, with the second match was Don, Ron and Don Wright against Mike York and Jerry Myatt. Third match was another tag match with Norvell Austin and Big Butch Malone, managed by General Homer O'Dell, who was making his first ever Southeastern wrestling appearance. Uh, that will be on television, and then he will be wrestling the He'll start wrestling in the month of December, but he won't actually be seen by fans in Knoxville until Christmas night. Fourth match that night was a continuation of the challenge matches between my brother Robert and Don Carson. And after two $500 challenge matches in which each wrestler had lost $500 because they, they didn't win that match and they had to pay the other wrestler $500, this match is going to push that money level extremely. After what had happened to Robert in the last Coliseum show with Norvell, Austin, and Don Carson doubling up on him, he decided to really go out on a limb to get to Carson. And he had won $3,500 in the two-ring battle royal along with his partner, Andre the Giant, two weeks earlier. Robert decides to put that $3,500 up against Don Carson's $3,500 of his own money, and the winner's going to take all. Uh, so... This is going to be a $7,000 match on uh, Friday night, November 28th. And the main event is a no-DQ, loser-leave-town match with me against Rock Hunter. Pretty darn good card. And uh, we're finishing out November with a bang. Uh, three Coliseum shows and a big show in Chilhowee Park. Let's take a look at the TV on Saturday, November 22nd. The day following, the NWA world title match with Jack Briscoe versus Ron Wright the last of three straight Coliseum shows in November of 1975. This TV show will promote the last card of November on November 28th. That's the card that we just described. First TV match was with my second cousin, Bobby Fields, from the Gulf Coast Wrestling Company. My father sold to him and his two brothers in 1959. Bobby was about 45 years old at this point, but he's still a great competitor and a, and a super wrestler. Uh, he would be returning for his second Southeastern match the following Friday in Chilhowee Park. Bobby was taking on a much larger opponent on television, Tony Peters, who wore, weighs about 300 pounds, about 6'4". And uh, Bobby's wearing a bandage on his forehead from a cut he received the night before from, oddly enough, his own partner, the superstar. 
Bobby made short work of the bigger Tony Peters and went straight to the set with Les to watch a very controversial tag match from the night before with his turncoat partner, the masked superstar, against Buddy Wayne and Don Lambert. This video showed what can happen when you don't know your tag partner well. Superstar was also making his first appearance with Southeastern the night before, the same as Bobby Fields. As Bobby described the match in progress, you could hear the anger rising as he told the story. As these Fields boys are a little bit hot-headed and Bobby really gets into just watching the match, it makes him mad. Uh, for no reason, his partner came and stomped him in the back of the head, threw him over the top rope, and uh, covered Buddy Wayne. Bobby had Buddy Wayne beat in the middle of the ring, and for no reason, you know, Superstar uh, just uh, stomps him, throws him out of the ring, and uh, covers Buddy Wayne. Ref counts out Wayne and raises a Superstar's hand, and then Bobby's coming back into the ring, and the ref raises Bobby's hand as well. But Bobby's more concerned, I think, at this point in that match with confronting his so-called partner. They exchanged words as the crowd got involved and what had happened definitely decided that they were supporting Bobby at this point. The superstar backed away, then offered his apology and offered to shake hands as a sign of atonement. Bobby reluctantly shook his ma the masked man's hand, turned and started to leave the ring again, and the superstar attacks him from behind a second time. This time the superstar threw him over the top rope, came out of the ring, ran him head first into the steel ring post and left him there bleeding and went to the dressing room. Uh, Bobby was really mad by the time he saw this point in the video. And uh, so the, so were the fans in the studio. And he told fans that weren't familiar with him that he was part of the largest wrestling family ever and was certainly man enough to take care of himself and was very happy that Southeastern Wrestling had approved his request to have a single match with this same superstar the following Friday night in Chilhowee Park. The fans also approved of Bobby and gave him a nice hand. Ron, if I could interrupt, real quick question, uh, and I'm not sure whether or not you've answered this in a prior stud cast. If you have, I apologize. The superstar, who, who was under the hood, you know? I don't really remember, to be honest with you. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, I, have a, I had so many guys come in under mask. Uh, a lot of them were younger guys. I can't place who these superstars are. And, uh, you know, later on in the show, we're going to find that there's a second superstar. Okay. So, uh, you know, I, I, and I, I wish I could remember who they were, but I had so many mass wrestlers wrestling for me that I don't remember some of them uh, right off the top of my head. But, uh, you know, the these guys were good. This superstar was really good. And the one that's going to arrive here later in this show was just as good as he was. I was very impressed with that team. Well, Ron, thankfully, I was able to do a little quick research here, and I reached out to our uh, friend Barry Rose and have been advised that the superstars were, in fact, Don Green and Carl Von Steiger. Oh, boy. Two great workers. Don Green, one of the greatest workers of all time, in my opinion. Uh, he, he's going to partner with Al Green. They're going to become a top tag team in uh, Tennessee. Carl Von Steiger and Kurt Von Steiger are going to become one of my tag teams in 76 in Knoxville. So those are two great wrestlers. I'm surprised. I did not remember who they were. It's hard to forget Don Green. Don Green, uh, one of the original Heavenly Bodies, wasn't he, uh, Ron? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, you know, uh, those two guys are really great workers. And, uh, you know, thanks to Barry. Thank Barry very much for, uh, for bringing us up to date on that. And, uh, yeah, uh, those were 
No wonder that they were such a good team and they got so much heat. Uh, they're actually going to be with me for about uh, three months in the, in the early part of 1976. And uh, they are going to, they're going to help me draw money. Uh, they're not going to be my top tag team, but they're certainly going to be uh, a great support to my cards. And after the commercial break, the new mass man, the superstar, came out, you know, the, the, we had a commercial break for the television so that they could sell, sell some uh, spots in the program. Superstar came out the set and joined Les to talk about his upcoming match with the guy who had just left the set, Bobby Fields. The fans already were obviously against this new masked man. Superstar had a very good interview, and it's the first I'd seen him do. I, I brought these guys in not, not knowing whether they were where he could do interviews, how good they could wrestle. I was really, really impressed with what, what they did. Uh, and they, had, they had skills. They definitely had wrestling skills. He made fun of the smaller Bobby Fields and the fact that Bobby came not only from the largest wrestling family ever, this is the way he put it, but the family with the most losses in history as well. <laughs> it wasn't true, but it got some heat with the fans, and I'm sure with Bobby, who was in the back watching the interview on a monitor. Before the interview was finished, Bobby came out and again got in the face of the superstar. This time, Les got out of his chair, forced his way between the two of them, and called for the end of the interview. Fans were into it, going crazy for a couple of guys that, who were making their first impression there on television and their first appearance in Southeastern. I was excited by this. It, it normally took weeks to get guys over, but this angle did it in one week. It made me feel confident that the fans were getting more involved themselves in angles, and maybe my angles were getting better. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm new at this being a promoter and uh, new at being a booker. And now I see that, you know, I come up with these ideas and the fans are buying it and uh, they're enjoying it. Uh, it was a great sign for Southeastern Wrestling and for my future, I thought, because, uh, you know, I got the feeling that, geez, Ron, you're, you're, you're getting some pretty good stuff put together. The second TV match was Robert Fuller against Jerry Mide. Robert got a great ovation, obviously, as he entered the ring and an even bigger one when he won in the middle of the ring using the Fuller leg lock. He went to the set after the match to watch two videos from the night before. He started with the very end of Robert's first match of the night with Norvell Austin, a time limit draw, where Carson came down on the end of the match and opened Rob up with his black glove. Carson then went into the ring and challenged an already bloody Robert to come back and start their five-minute challenge match. Right then and right there is the way Carson put it for Rob's $500. Uh, the ref tried to get Rob to go back to the dressing room. He didn't have to go back to the ring right then. He's bleeding, and he's just wrestled a, a time limit draw with Austin. But Rob went back to the ring instead. Norvell sneaked out, <laughs> out of the ring, and he hid underneath the ring before Carson started his announcement. Neither Robert or the referee had any idea Norvell was under the ring the entire five minutes. Rob crawled into the ring, already bleeding, after a 20-minute time limit draw, like I said, with Austin. And it wasn't a good idea. Carson started on him immediately. Carson had to win in five minutes to get Rob's money, just as Rob had to do a couple weeks earlier to get Carson's 500. Robert's watching and describing the action in the video, and the fans are responding as if the match is live on TV. I mean, you know, you're getting the same response from watching something from a building that you get with an actual live match. You're, you're, you're doing something right. Carson took the first three minutes or so, and Rob turned it around with a big comeback in the last two minutes. The announcer was counting down the remaining minutes. 
Rob and the ref had a collision right at the end, about 30 seconds maybe left in the match. Norvell appears from under the ring and turns Carson's potential loss into a victory. Norvell then grabbed the $500 from the ring announcer, Phil Rainey, helped Carson back to the dressing room as the Coliseum was displaying their dislike at the ending of this challenge match. The fans did not like it. I mean, obviously, Norvell had, and Carson had really kind of screwed him twice in, in five minutes. So at this point, Rob asked the director to please get out of the video. He then made an impassioned money challenge again to Don Carson. He reminded fans of where these challenges all started, the night he and Andre beat Carson and Norvell in the two-ring battle royal just two Fridays earlier. He told Carson that he was willing to do one more money challenge, but this time not on his second match of the night, but their only match of the night, and it would be against each other. This time he said he would put up his $3,500 prize from that Andre Battle Royal if Carson would put up $3,500 of his own money. And the winner of the match is going to get $7,000. Basically, we're going to win $35,000. They're going to keep their $3,500 too. The fans popped as Rob left the set. Don Carson arrived at the set after the two-minute commercial break. Fans booed big time as soon as they saw Carson come around the corner in the studio. He was as hot a heel as I had ever seen in their first month in a new territory. He jumped right in before Les could even ask him about the new challenge for Robert. He accepted the challenge to put up the $3,500 and said he would be happy to take his share of that battle royal money that Robert had done nothing to win. He said Andre did all the work and the punk got the money. He said punks don't know how to spend $3,500, but I do. So he told Les he had his eyes on a champion coon dog, and by this time the next week, that dog would be his. He screamed shut up at the studio audience several times as they just continued to boo him. And then he had a big laugh out of it, saying to Les at the end, they love me, don't they? It was amazing how fast he was getting over. He was really, really uh, getting somewhere. The personality profile was the next on the, on the television show, and it was with Don Carson. It was pre-recorded and done with Phil Rainey instead of the normal host, Les Thatcher. Uh, we're going to play today for fans uh, the entire profile, just as it was done on November 22nd, 1975. This is another one of those classic audios from the original Southeastern Wrestling Television show from more than 44 years ago. And Jeff, if you're ready, uh, let's play that audio. And Don, on this segment of our program, we like to find out a little bit about Don Carson, the individual. What are some of Don Carson's particular hobbies and what are some of your likes and dislikes? I know you're a bird dog hunter. Uh, you, you have a bird dog you like to hunt. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your bird dog. Well, let me ask you a question. First of all, Mr. Rainey, uh, where is the guy that usually does the profile? You know, Mr. Thatcher is not uh, in this segment of the program. Uh, he gave me the opportunity to come over to talk to you today. He gave me the opportunity. I imagine he did because there's a certain reason why he's not here today. Well, we won't go into that right now because this program is, this segment of the program is designed to find out about Don Carson, the individual. Well, tell I me mean, a little bit about yourself. I'd be happy to tell you. I, like you said, I'm a bird dog trainer. I have 28 Fair. bird dogs, and uh, all 28 of them are the finest bird dogs that money can buy anywhere. I train them myself. I raised my own bird dog. Uh, the opening day of this season, this past season, I killed 137 birds. You're also noted for 
uh, your big game hunting too. You, you you killed a big bear. I understand. Tell me about that. Yeah, I guess it's the biggest bear. I never I never entered it in the record, but it's probably the largest bear that's ever been in history. I killed it in Alaska. And uh, anyway, let me tell you a little bit about something else. I also train horses, and you know, like like Ron Fuller, he calls himself the Tennessee Stud. Right. Well, actually, he's the Tennessee uh, a Shetland Pony. That's what he's going to be, rather than that is. You're going to get into that without discussing your hobbies. Well, I came up here today, and and like you said, this program is designed to let everyone know exactly what this person is and what he means and what his background is. And I brought you a couple of trophies here. Uh, These two trophies here represent a thousand trophies. I've gone to many different countries. I, I have won every championship belt in the United States with the exception of the world title. And if I'd have wanted to, I could have won that. Now, you, you brought up, Don, you brought up uh, trophies, you brought up your, your horses, your hunting. Uh, let's get into the thing that a lot of people want to find out about. Just Why minute. does Don Carson wear? Just to show you, let me just pick one of these letters up here, which is, this is the ones that I got this morning, by the way. This morning. Right. right. Here's one letter. It comes from uh, Miracle, Kentucky. So I'll, I'll read this one. Dear Mr. Carson, we think that you are the greatest wrestler in the world today. We think that you're the most handsome wrestler, if you didn't really get that right, in the world today. And we appreciate you being in our area. Thank you very much, Larry Wilder. And that's a nice letter, right? I would say that's a nice letter. Very yeah. nice letter. Going, going right on down the line, I'll read you one more. Now, there are bound to be some letters that, uh, that do not go along with Don Carson's tactics. Uh, the Don Carson who wears the black glove. Uh, we won't get into that. Here's a letter. Here's the, here's sir. I watch wrestling every week on the. Uh, on may I may I read those letters? Hey, if you don't mind, please. Dear sir, I watch wrestling every week, and the most of it I enjoy. But I don't think you should let Don Carson wear. Well, that, that's the kind of letters I want to look at. I don't know how that one got in there. What's, what's in the box? Is this more of your letters? No, the box will stay right there to, to the last of the program. Okay. Let's, and I'll tell you and show you. Let's get it. back to why Don Carson wears a black glove. And, and I'd like to, if you would, to take it off for me, because we had Mike York on this personality profile earlier. He took his glove off, his bandage off, and showed us his scars. And why Mr. he wears it. You know, you know, this program, this profile was designed for one purpose. And that was to get into the hobbies and find out what a person does and what his background is. That was designed for that purpose. You take little young Robert Fuller for instance. No, he no, has we, no business in the. We want to talk. We want to talk Jimmy about Don Carson and his black glove. Our fans out there want to know why Don Carson wears the black glove. Will you take it off for him? You're going to stay on the glove, but then, aren't you? I you mean, insist that you stay on the glove, bit. You can't stay off of the glove. You've got to get in somebody's I would, I would like to. Player, I would you? like you to take it off and show me what you have in the glove. Mr. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Now, let's do something a little bit different than this profile has ever been done before. You're, you're not answering Just a minute. Let's do something a little bit different than we've ever done in a profile before. You do it. No, I think you ought to come back and let the fans see. Don't. That's been our personality profile today with Don Carson, and as of yet, he has ex- failed to explain why he is wearing the black glove. Carson, for the first time ever on a Southeastern Wrestling TV show, left the set during a personality profile before the profile was over. 
you know, I liked it. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, some some promoters would have said, hey, you know, wait a minute. Uh, uh, it To me, it just added more heat to him. And I'd like to thank the Hill Brothers in Knoxville, Tennessee, for that audio, as well as the others in today's show. Uh, these gentlemen have really been really, really nice to send me some of these audios from the actual programs themselves. Uh, let's talk about the third match on the television show. It was a new team with a new manager. Norville Austin was joined by the newcomer Big Much Malone and a never-before-seen Southeastern Wrestling manager, General Homer O'Dell. Before we go any further, I'd like to describe what General Homer O'Dell looks like. You know, he was about five feet eight inches and probably easily 300 pounds. He had a fat face and he had these real pooched out lips, you know, and he, he dressed in a black motorcycle jacket, a black army type helmet with five stars on the front, like he's a five star general, uh, usually in khaki pants and army boots. And for those fans that have been around a while, he would remind you of the old television commercials where the old fat cop gets out and stops somebody and comes to the driver's window and, uh, and he pushes out his big lips and his big belly and he looks at the guy sitting in the car and he goes, you're in a heap of trouble, boy. You know, and I, you know, that, that, that to me is exactly, that's the way he talked when he made his interviews. He kind of talked like a big old fat policeman that's just about to take you to jail. He was basically ugly, obnoxious, and, and he knew all the tricks of the manager game. I knew he could get great heat from watching him manage the Georgia champion, Buddy Colt, right before I started to wrestle myself in the early 1970s. When he got in touch with me, I knew he was perfect for Southeastern. This was going to be my main team for many months. It had two young and talented heels with a manager everyone was going to love to hate. They were on TV for the first time against Rocky Smith, and Dennis Hall, a pretty good combination themselves. What a great match they had, with Homer's boys showing a tremendous number of great tag team moves and fast tags in and out. I was very impressed, but even more so when I found out that they'd been working out every day for the last week with Homer in the ring that always stayed up at Chill High Park. That really impressed me more. The fact that they were committed to doing that proved to me they were going to be good. They finished off Rocky Smith with a standing suplex by Malone, a quick tag to Austin. Then Malone shot Smith into the ropes opposite where Norvell hit the ropes on the other side of the ring. And it looked like Norvell took another head off when he collided head first with Smith with his flying headbutt. When Norvell covered Smith, Malone cut off Dennis Hall at the knees to prevent the save. Classic, classic tag team wrestling and uh this is a heel team that's really looking like they've wrestled together for years and they're in their first two weeks together so uh the instant replay was outstanding i was impressed with their first win and and i'm sure fans watching were also homer shot up into the ring and he raised both their hands as he stood between them a new team and maybe a new era had arrived in southeastern that day uh, these guys are going to do some business for me as they left the ring with the camera still on them, they ran face-to-face -face into Rock Hunter on his way to the set as they were returning to the dressing room. Hunter reached out and grabbed Norvell by the shoulder and spun him around angrily because, uh, you know, uh, Hunter and Norvell were supposed to be big buddies. And Homer, don't ever touch my boys again. Hunter backed off and continued to the set to watch the results of our Brass Nucks match the night before. This would be Hunter's last TV. He watched very quietly as, 
is I took it to him during the video. I mean, I really, uh, that night, he really put me over great, uh, and I looked really good. He was bleeding, but I wasn't. Les drew his attention to it. Uh, Hunter didn't like the remarks Les made, but remained calm, as was his usual demeanor. Hunter stayed with him for the third interview of the show. And uh, here again, we're going to use another uh, one of those classic videos, uh, those audios, rather. And uh, let's hear a little bit of Rock Hunter's interview uh, that has Jeff, uh, when you're ready, play that audio. Well, as you know, uh, Mr. Thatcher, I've made a number of predictions before sitting right here beside you. And I would say that I was always at least 99% uh, correct. Well, I'll make a prediction right now. Rock Hunter won't be the one to leave our city of Knoxville for a number of reasons. First, I said I would get Ron Fuller. And I did get Ron Fuller. But he didn't learn his lesson, and now he wants another lesson. Another reason that I won't leave you is because a number of people have de expressed a desire to join me in my organization, a lot of new people. And last but not least, my friends, and I don't mean the lunchbox and overall set, I mean the upper echelons of society, the people that control our city of Knoxville have all, each and every one, said to me, Rock, don't ever, ever leave us. Well, I promised those people that I wouldn't leave our city of Knoxville, and I'm not going to. Well, Mr. Hunter, I know it's going to be tough competition. It's certainly a big match, and I'm sure Ron Fuller must have the same feeling. He doesn't feel like he's going anyplace either. Well, he's going somewhere, all right. And that's to the doctor place on a stretcher. We remained very confident and in control. He did. You know, I mean, it was his style. Uh, you know, fans didn't like it because he never got mad. He never got upset. And they booed him roundly as he left the set. I mean, he had heat. But uh, the next Friday night's going to be his last night in Southeastern. The last TV match of the show was me against Mike York. Mike was a big guy with size that's going to get me over. When I beat a big guy, I, you know, I'm going to wrestle somebody that's kind of my size. And, uh, you know, this, this Mike York's a big boy. The match only lasted a few minutes and, uh, and ended up with me putting a fuller leg lock on him. And he quickly submitted, as most guys did, because the hole was so painful that even when I applied it lightly and tried not to hurt people, it still hurt them. Uh, this hole was truly a great shooting hole. Once I learned it as a young boy, about 10 years old, my dad taught me how to do it, I was able to make anyone of any size or age submit. And I can't tell you how many times I used that move to win shoots during the, during the course of my life. I went to the set for the last interview show of the show, and I was joined by Robert. And I have another one of those classic interviews from 1975 with both Rob and I talking about the following Friday night's double main event. Robert's $3,500 challenge match with Don Carson and my loser leave town match with Rock Hunter. And uh, bear in mind, folks, this is, this is the live deal. This is the way it went down. This is what we sounded like. And we sound very young. I have to admit that this is 44 years ago. And Jeff, when you're ready, play that audio. 
That's right, Les. You know, I want to explain something before we go too far. I heard Carson out here just a little while ago uh, calling me a coward and talking about me running and everything. Well, I just want to straighten all this out with the people of Knoxville. I did run just long enough to win his his $500. As soon as I won his $500, then I grabbed hold of the mic and, and told the people I was going to give them what they came to see, and that's see him get the food beat out of him. And I went in that ring, and that's exactly what I started to do. And if there was anybody doing any running, it was Don Carson doing the running. But the running is over now. You put up your money, Carson, I put up mine. This is one match that I mean to win. I tell you, I've been in Knoxville, and i got a very good record for the time that I've been here. And I mean to win this one if I'm ever going to win one again, unless you can depend on that. Well, Robert, I know you're going to be up for it. Of course, Ron, you've got a big one at stake, too. It's no disqualification. The loser leave town, and you're against Rock Hunter. Well, that's right, Les. Uh, one of them's gone, right? Right. I mean, the assassin's gone, and uh, I would like to have had him gone in a different way, but the NWA has gotten rid of him, and that, that's a very strict fine. They put him out of wrestling, what it amounted to. And, uh, and I can tell you right now that there's going to be another one gone Friday night. There's one down, and there's still two to go. But I'm going to get you first, Hunter, and I figure with you gone, Austin's got no place to go. And uh, Les, uh, there's a little saying I heard one time that there's uh, never been a horse that couldn't be rode and there's never been a man that couldn't be thrown. Let me tell you something, Hunter. Friday night, the Tennessee Suds going to throw you out of the state of Tennessee, baby. You're going to be gone. And now it's time for another reminder of Super Studcast number 24 with the exotic Adrian Street. Here's David Summers. Super Studcast cover wrestlers of all kinds and from everywhere. Super Studcast number 24 crosses the Atlantic Ocean to a beautiful spot in Wales to bring patrons a very different type of wrestler. People around the world are not sure what he is, and he doesn't mind. This is our first journey to the European continent to visit one of the strangest wrestlers in history. A dangerous shooter, singer, songwriter, book writer, actor, artist, and so much more at tmstud.com or Patreon. Part one, now available, is absolutely fascinating as you meet one of the greatest wrestling stars in the world who conquered Europe and its champions long before arriving in America. This could only be one person on earth, the exotic one himself, Adrian Street. There has never been a super stud cast like this one, and fan or not, you will not want to miss this piece of wrestling history at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash stud. Part 2, covering his time in America, will be released on New Year's Eve. A total of three unforgettable hours for only $2.99. Don't miss it. You'll be telling your friends about it the day you hear it. Okay, Ron, as we're back, before we go on, a couple questions I got for you, if you don't mind. First of all, uh, as you were describing uh, the General Homer Odell, a thought came to mind. You tell me whether or not this is kind of kind of a pretty good comparison sounds like he was a little like sheriff buford t justice smoky and the bandit jack there Lewis. you go okay that's very that's what good. i was that's very what i was thinking good. except now, he's, he's quite a bit bigger than than uh, buford okay. you know he doesn't wear white he wears mostly black uh you know uh he's he's a he's a nasty dude and uh you know uh and we're going to talk quite a bit about him in the future he's he's horrified of fans uh, he he's one of those heels that uh that has been in riots and many of them because he's, he's such a heat getter, you know? So, so, uh, we're going to get to that some too, but yeah, he's, he's, that's a really good, good <laughs> comparison there. And, uh, yeah, he's a, 
if fans are going to learn to hate him, they're going to absolutely hate Homer Odo. Uh, okay. Crazy. So now, now I want to ask you a quick question about Norvell Austin. You know, on my own uh, podcast, a while back, we did a discussion. Matter of fact, I think you may have been a part of that about guys that were what I termed Hall of Fame tag team wrestlers. You know, guys like your Bobby Eaton's uh, that have been in more than one tag team that was considered great. And as I started thinking about Norvell Austin, you were talking about this this team with Butch Malone being a great team, and I think about his team with Dennis Condry and Randy Rose, the original Midnight Express. I think about his team with Coco Beware as, as the pretty young thing. Norvell Austin, he if he's not a Hall of Famer as a tag team wrestler, he's got to be pretty close, Ron. Yes, he does. And you, you could add another guy to that, uh, him and Spudnik Munro. There you go. Uh, way, yeah. way back, probably the first guy that he really tagged with, and what a team those two made. I mean, uh, Norvell put the white streak in his hair just like Sputnik had. I mean, you know, those guys were a tremendous team, too. Norvell's a fantastic tag wrestler, and uh, that's why he's, he, he gets it so quickly with uh, Butch Malone. They just gel together, and uh, they're both about the same age, uh, and they're both scratchers and diggers in the ring, and they work hard. Uh, Norvell is a tremendous talent, always was in his entire career. But you make a good point. I think he was a much better tag wrestler than he was as a single. Okay, Ron, where are we going now? Well, let's finish the night of Friday, November 28, 75, and the results of the matches that night. The opening match was Bobby Fields versus the Superstar. We talked about what they talked about on television and how that went. And fans were really into this match, especially considering they'd, they'd never seen these two wrestlers before. Both of these guys were great workers, and they had the crowd almost all the way through the match. I had a surprise for the audience that night. I love to surprise fans. Shock them. Maybe a better turn than surprise. Uh, Bobby was about to finish off the superstar in this match. Uh, when into the ring from the back of the building comes a second superstar dressed exactly like the first one. The building just went silent. I mean, you know, Bobby's in the middle of, of this big comeback. He's about to pin the guy. And all of a sudden, here arrives another superstar that they didn't, nobody's ever seen before. So uh, building went silent, like I said, as they double teamed him, <laughs> helpless Bobby Fields. The ref kept ringing the bell and trying to stop the two of them. But they continued to get that heat. Man, those boys wanted to get over. It was one of the few times in my career that there was almost a riot in the first match of the night. Uh, you know, that just doesn't happen. And uh, we had recorded the match. Uh, to show the following day on TV. Uh, it, and we carried Bobby Fields out. He He's leaving. He only was there for a couple of weeks. We had him carry him out. He did a tremendous job for those two guys. And uh, and for me as well, uh, you know, being a, related to him, I really appreciate how hard Bobby worked for me in those two shows that he did for me. Uh, we recorded the match to show the following day on TV. It was loud in that indoors Chilhowee Park building. And the police had a hard time getting the two new masked men back to the dressing room. I wasn't surprised by that. You know, uh, I watched the match. It was hot, you know, and for a first match, it was extremely hot. You don't see that happen very often. The second match was Ron and Don Wright versus Jerry Myatt and Mike York. This was another good match with the Wright brothers getting a win. The fans seemed to be on fire that night. The third match was another tag match with the new team of Norvell Austin, Butch Malone, and manager Homer Odell against Les Thatcher and Dennis Hall. 
This was the best match so far. And boy, did the new team get over. I watched it, uh, this one from up above, too, on the second floor of the building, in the old uh, indoor building there at Chihai Park. And I could hardly hear myself think as this match went on. I mean, the crowd was just going crazy. Uh, Thatcher and Hall had a lot of experience working together, and it showed. In fact, I think there were three of those guys. At one point, there was Roger Kirby, Les Thatcher, and Dennis Hall. And uh, those three guys were made a lot of money traveling around the country in different places and working together. So Hall and Thatcher had a lot of darn uh, experience working together, but Austin and Malone were like a well-oiled machine, man. They, they looked like they had been working together for years. We're two weeks in to their being here. And these guys are just, uh, they're amazing. Uh, I was so impressed. And I knew right then that this team was going to get over fantastic. Austin and Malone won that match, and they also had a hard time getting back to the dressing room afterward. Homer did absolutely nothing in that match. Uh, he did nothing to get any heat, and I didn't want him to. It's their first time to be seen. If they can't win a match without him having to interfere, then they're not that good a team. So I didn't want him to do anything, and he didn't. Probably surprised the fans that he never made a move at all to help them. Fourth match was the Robert Fuller versus Don Carson challenge match for $7,000 to the winner. Each brought $3,500 in cash to the ring <laughs> and $100 bills. Uh, the ref accepted the money, and but he had a hard time even handing it over to the ring announcer, Phil Rainey, and Phil Rainey put the money inside a briefcase. The briefcase and the money was going to go to whoever won the match. The fans were ready for this one, and these two old pros took it from there. And I call Rob an old pro because he had actually been working for five or six years. Uh, Don Carson has been working for a very long time at this point. He's on the far side of his career, but he still knows how to get heat. Uh, there was a pop after pop in this match uh, with Don calling the match, and Robert did a tremendous job of selling for him. Carson ended up using his glove to bust Robert open, and then he finally got the win. When he left the ring with the briefcase full of money, I was concerned he might not even make it back to the dressing room in one piece. Not only are they going to maybe get him for the money, they're going to get him because they want to get him. You know, he's really got some heat at this point. Uh, we recorded this match, too, as well, and we're going to show it the following Saturday on TV. The main event is the no time limit. No disqualification, lose-or-leave-town match between myself and Rock Hunter. The building was electric as I went to the ring. The match went about 30 minutes with lots of false finishes and had everybody in the building standing when I put the fuller leg lock on him. I think I had a harder time getting back to the dressing room than Hunter did. Fans were all over me. It was an overall spectacular show. And the last show that we're going to run in Knoxville until Christmas night which is almost a month later. So let's talk about the house and the payoffs. The crowd was back into the 3,000 range again. That Coliseum was always going to add about another 1,000 fans at this point in time, 74, 75. But uh, that 1,000 more fans that it was adding in those years are going to turn into four or 5,000 more fans uh, in 76, 77, 78, and on in the future. The prices were also lower in Chilhowee Park than the Coliseum by at least a dollar per ticket. So the 3,000 fans at $3 per ticket was a gross gate of 9,000. 
payoff was a total of almost 3,000. Both superstars, Bobby Fields, uh, Mike York, Jerry Myatt, and the referee got $130 each. Norvell Austin, Butch Malone, Homer O'Dell, the two Wright brothers, Thatcher and Hall, they got $180 each. And I did not take a payoff again. So Robert and Carson and Hunter, who were in the main events with me, got $280 each. Not a bad night for the end of November and one of the worst times of the year for wrestling across America. Uh, December is tough. November, late November and early December are very, very difficult times. So next, uh, let's look, break down the Arbitron and Nielsen ratings for Southeastern wrestling from November 1975. Uh, I've been talking about this for the last few studcasts, how important it was to to load these television shows up with talent. Uh, for instance, the last show had Sam Muchnick in the opening. It had Jack Briscoe on the profile. It had just a who's who of wrestling around the country. Uh, so I pushed those things into November because I know in December I'm going to get these ratings. You basically bought these books uh, by the market. Knoxville's market obviously had television stations. Chattanooga had television stations. Uh, you know, uh, Nashville, Memphis, uh, major cities where you had television stations, usually more than one. Arbitron and Nielsen would take these ratings every November to let the stations know uh, how they're doing. So uh, they they were only interested in getting them for their stations, you know, and, and they used them to quickly identify which programs on their station were successful and which ones were not. That was critical for television stations. You don't want to have a bad show on there that's never getting you any ratings. You can't charge any money for advertising on it. So they used them to quickly identify the, with the programs on their station which ones were, were successful and which ones were not. This number also gave them a realistic idea of what they should be charging for their commercials. So they were critical for for television stations, but I realized that they were critical for my company as well because I need to shove these ratings uh, to a level in which uh, I've got people watching wrestling that never watched wrestling before and where they can sell those spots for a lot of money, uh, where I can get my share up real high. Uh, it's uh, it was it was critical for me. I thought those rating books were as important for me as they were for the television stations. Southeastern had only been on WBIR-TV since mid-May 1975, and we only had one rating book in July since we went on the air. The July book was the worst of the four books that came out each year because summer was the lowest viewing audience of the year. People are doing other things in the summer. And the television audience is going to go down. Many stations didn't pay any attention at all to the July book. But the November book, that was a whole new deal. That's an extremely important book. We're going to break this book down compared to the July and November books of years previously. We'll look at both of the, the share of audience, meaning the total number of home watching TV, our hour that we're on the air, and how many of those homes are watching us. That's the, It was called the share of the odd total audience that's watching TV. Critical numbers for television stations. And when you want to go get a new TV station and you've got a television station that has an 80 share, 80% of the homes at 2 o'clock in the afternoon are watching your program, 
you can get on any station in America. They'll take you, man, because they never see those kind of numbers. It's almost impossible to do that. So we're going to break this book down to compare it to the July and November books. We'll look at both the share audience, uh, which I just told you about, and we'll also look at what each station charged for commercial spots in those wrestling programs. That's a big thing for them. How much are they going to make by having your show on the air? To do this comparison properly, I asked WBIR sales manager Lynn Leppert to pull me both Arbitron and Nielsen books for November 1974 and July of 1975 for the old station. Not the, not the new station. I wanted to see what John Kazana did in November of 1974 compared to what my book looked like in 1975. I wanted to see the same thing for July. Uh, what he did in July of 75 is compared, you know, what we did in 75 is compared to what he did in 74. I'll give you the figures for John's old station in July of 1974 compared to Southeastern on the new station in 1975. The old station had about a 20 share and sold their spots for about $25. A 20 share means of all the people that are watching television at the time the old wrestling program of John Kazanis was on the air, about one out of five people was watching wrestling. And uh, they could, that's why they sold their spots for $25. I mean, you know, they, they didn't have a very big audience. Southeastern, after only three months on the air, at the new station was a 50 share and had spots being sold for $75, three times the price they were selling them for. And the share was 30% bigger than theirs was. And when we looked at the November book of 1974, when Kazana was on the old station, the share was 25%. That's this recent book that we're just looking at now. In 74, he only had 25% of the audience watching him. There's more people watching. He's probably doing a little better business. And the spots he were selling for $30 in 1974 on his old station. Southeastern, one year later, on, in November 1975, we had grown from 50 to a 60 share in three months. It was amazing. The television people were crazy. Wow. They were like, wow, this is unbelievable. They jumped their price from $75 to $125 for spots. Uh, just to give you an idea of where this is going, in 1978, Southeastern Wrestling in Knoxville is going to have an 80 share, which means four out of five people watching television at 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoons are watching wrestling. It was the highest rated program on television from sign off to prime time, including football, college football. We beat everybody. Uh, and the, these spots are now, he, they're pushing these spots to 125. In 1978, they're going to get 300 for each of them. They're going to just be fantastically excited and happy with the results of wrestling on their station. Sales manager at WBR, new station, was ecstatic with the growth, obviously, over just a three-month period. And we were both excited about the results of some very good state-of-the-art wrestling shows that we had been producing since we came on that station. That new format, uh, the instant replays, the split screens, the personality profiles, and, and 10 other things probably had a great deal of effect on our growth. And people were just tuning in and going, wow, never seen a wrestling show like this. It's unbelievable. 
neither of us, talking about the sales manager at WBIR and I, had any idea how large these numbers are going to become in the next two years. Kind of already told you what they were, but uh, it was amazing the growth that we were we were going to receive. It just just amazing. And speaking of the big jump in the TV audience on Southeastern Wrestling Show, let's talk about the unique idea I had for Southeastern in December of 1975. I'd already decided months earlier to get out there and find new cities that were now within television range of, of this big television station that we were on. To find new cities, find new high schools that were looking to make money, to find places where we could go and turn this little uh, one-town territory of Knoxville, basically, into a six-day-a-week full-time territory. So I'd been out there doing it. I decided in December of 1975, let's start hitting some of these cities. Uh, I wanted to get, I wanted to check cities in, in Tennessee. I wanted to see what Tennessee and my Kentucky towns that I had ready to go and my Virginia towns I had ready to go. I wanted to open them up in December to gauge how well we were we were doing and creating new wrestling fans in the area. I mean, the best way to tell whether you're getting over or not is by how many people come into those big old gymnasiums. We had been running Marshtown, Tennessee and Middlesbrough, Kentucky fairly regularly since July. In December, we're going to focus on the other new cities I had ready to go, but I'd been holding off until now. We'd run Harley, Kentucky once, and we'd run it twice in December of 1975. First show did about 1,200 people. The next two in December averaged almost 1,500 in December. That's amazing to be. Uh, that's a 20% increase over the shows prior to December. And to do that in December, it was just a, and it happened because these cities didn't have regular wrestling. This was their first opportunity to see these big stars. And I could see it was going to happen. It was, it was already beginning to happen. Morristown had averaged about 1400, but increased to over 1600 in the month of December alone, a 15% increase in the attendance in December before Christmas, unheard of. December of 1975, Southeastern Wrestling, going to run the following new cities in Tennessee that we had never run before. Maryville, Jamestown, up there on the Cumberland Plateau, halfway between Knoxville and Nashville, Jellicoe, Tennessee, uh, on the way to Lexington, Kentucky, up 75, Newport, Tennessee, uh, going toward North Carolina, just before you cross the Smoky Mountains into North Carolina, Greenville, Tennessee, Sevierville, Tennessee, Gatlinburg, uh, towns that had never been run before. In Kentucky, we started with Corbin, Kentucky, and Williamsburg, Kentucky. Uh, Corbin, Kentucky, the home of Kentucky Fried Chicken, that's where it all started, was right there. Uh, we were right there in Corbin and Williamsburg in Virginia. We ran in Big Stone Gap for the first time. We did not have a single city draw less than 1,000 fans, and some of those cities drew 2,000 fans. It was obvious, since none of the gyms were full, we would really be rocking when we started to fill these gyms up. I mean, uh, it not only excited me to see this, but it excited all of my wrestlers as well because they started seeing the potential that was ahead for all of us. Uh, we get Knoxville drawing really good, and we get in these towns that uh, we're half filling those gyms and we start filling them up and turning people away. Uh, there's going to be money to be made. 
it just made the future look great for Southeastern. And that's exactly where we were at that point. You know, I thought one of the points was interesting. Uh, excuse me for backtracking a little bit. You mentioned that traditionally December was a tough month. And, you know, as I was sitting there thinking about it, usually, and, you know, let, let's take it into the 80s. I know Christmas and Thanksgiving were always such biz, uh, big days for shows. Uh, is that, was the territory that you had there, was that, uh, was the lack of business during the Thanksgiving, Christmas times or between them? Was that an anomaly or was that something that was kind of like all over the place? It was kind of, kind of, it was kind of across the country. It was, uh, you know, you had Thanksgiving nights, a big night. You're going to run on Thanksgiving. You're going to sell out your building. I don't care where you are. But after Thanksgiving and people start thinking about Christmas and they're spending that money and their emphasis and their focus is on something other than wrestling, uh, you're going to fall off in the first three weeks of December. Now, once you get to Christmas night, it lights up. I mean, business goes crazy. Christmas night, you start back. And from Christmas all the way through the winter, you're going to have big business. But uh, that first three weeks of December, when people are spending and buying presents and, and they're thinking about other things, it's a very difficult time to run. And that's why I decided not to run Knoxville. I didn't want to run it the first three weeks in December. I waited until Christmas night because I felt like on Christmas night, we're going to kick them in the butt. We're going to have big full building and uh, we're actually going to run, this maybe sounds crazy, but we're going to run three shows after Christmas. We're going to run two shows within three days uh, in Knoxville because it's that time of year now. Uh, once you get past Christmas, everything lights up in wrestling all across the nation. And uh, I wanted to be ready for it in Knoxville. I wanted not to have these bad houses to deflate my talent by them going, oh, gosh, we had it all going, going good, and now look what happened. I avoided all that by putting them into small towns that they'd never been in before and seeing really good crowds, and not just those crowds in those small towns, because they had never had wrestling ever before in some of them. It was amazing, truly amazing at how much those fans got into it. So, you know, it just, the wrestlers loved it. They, they were like, wow, man, I love working these small towns and you, we got it going, man. We're, where did we get back to Knoxville again? It all seemed to work great. Well, in those small towns, wrestlers, because they've never been there before, they truly are like rock stars coming in. Oh, absolutely. You better believe it. Yeah. So, okay. Next question. Uh, you alluded to the interview the superstar did regarding uh, your cousin Bobby Fields and that he got a little bit personal, if you will. Now, Jerry Jarrett is famous for having said that personal issues uh, equal money. Now, obviously, that wasn't the case in this uh, particular circumstance. But did you ever uh, sort of adhere to that uh, philosophy? Did you like when things uh, maybe in an interview to kind of get the feud going a little bit stronger, got a little personal? Was that something you were in favor of? Oh, doing? yeah. I mean, if you're a good heel. Uh, when I worked Memphis, since you're talking about Memphis, basically, I worked Memphis for uh, six months as a Southern heavyweight champion. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I wanted to make it as personal as I could. I spent I spent half my interviews talking about Jerry Lawler and calling him fat and small and, and, and you know, but just 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 making horrible remarks about him. You know, I'm sure Jerry didn't like it worth the worth worth a damn, but uh, it made money. And whenever Jerry and I worked, we sold the buildings out. So yeah, you it's 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 part of what the building business is all about. I mean, if if you don't get a little personal, you're really missing the boat uh, because that's where your real heat is. 
And, you know, that little remark that the superstar made about, you know, well, you may be from the biggest wrestling family. They do have the most losses at the same time. So, uh, you know, that, that was that was a so, so when you when you hear that comment, Ron, are you like uh, in the back going, say what? Or is it like, hey, that's a pretty great line? Oh, I love it. No, I don't get upset by it. You know, I mean, you know, I don't take it personally. Uh, hell, I, I'm, I'm there to see the big sellout. If I'm on the main event and I've got that sellout and I'm going to go home with a pocket full of money, I'm going to make some nasty remarks every week about somebody. <laughs> uh, now, finally, uh, about the uh, the situation with, with Rock Hunter, uh, as, I, as you were talking about the end of that program, it got me to thinking, you know, uh, and I understand that he and the assassin had left the area. When you get into a program with somebody that's being successful, is there a particular link that you have in your mind, okay, this should go uh, three months now, of course, we're we're talking about somebody that you know is going to stay there, and you know, uh, obviously, them leaving a little bit early on you, uh, it could maybe have gone out as far as maybe you wanted to. But if it's a successful program, do you generally have in your mind uh, how long it's going to last, what the blow off match is going to be, like how far out into the future were you like in a book? Well, give you an example. You know, the the angle with me and Bob Armstrong, and which uh, I'm working with Ric Flair, and he's a special referee. That angle was done in 1982. Uh, that angle went on for five years. That program went on for five years uh, because it was so solidly built and so solidly put together. People bought it and they bought into it. And it just, it, it we, you know, he, he had kids come along. Um, I had my family. Uh, he had his family. Uh, it was just a spectacular uh, deal that just, it, you know, you don't stop. Uh, I used to always, I never stopped the program until I saw the houses fall because, you know, obviously they're, they're telling you, the fans are telling you, if you go in there, once they turned dusty baby face in 74 in Florida, I was there. And once they did that turn with dusty, they sold out every house every night for months and months. And when they saw it start dropping, it was a, it was real effective of, you know, it, it affected all the wrestlers. It's like, wait a minute. Wow. This, this town ain't sold out. You know, it's a, so uh, you ride, you ride that horse when you get him really running fast and you, you're, you're in the race, you ride that horse until you see that he's about to falter. And, uh, and then you, you back off and you go in different direction. But uh, I like to have long programs. I like to work uh, good angles. If you work good angles, that leads right into great program. And great programs can go for years. As long as you, you're creative, you can find different types of matches than anyone has ever had before. And we used to do a lot of that, Southeastern and Continental. So uh, it was just a... Great programs could go for years. The one with me and Bob Armstrong, I think, is one of the longest-running feuds in the history of wrestling, probably. And uh, it encompassed family members of his. Uh, his boys were uh, becoming stars. And uh, you got me and Rob and Jimmy and, uh, you know, Roy Lee. I got another Welch that was there in Pensacola. It was just uh, it, it was a great, great way to uh, run the business. And uh, you don't really then worry about uh, switching your talent. Uh, you don't need to switch your talent because you're selling out every night. And if you switch your talent, you may not sell out every night anymore. So we ride that horse when he's running good.
All right. Well, Ron, as we call for the go home, I want to remind everybody on Facebook to become friends with the stud. You simply go to Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, and like that page, and you are automatically friends with a legend. On Twitter, at Ron Fuller Welch. Don't forget the new super stud cast number 24 with the incomparable exotic Adrian Street as available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast part one is phenomenal and now available three hours of unforgettable wrestling history for only two dollars and 99 cents the best deal in wrestling ron where are we going next week well we're going to run two knoxville shows in one week like i mentioned earlier we're going to run christmas night and we're going to run three days later on a sunday afternoon the first on christmas night and the second is sunday december 28th just three days later unheard of to run them back to back but you have a television between each of those shows. So that's why I was able to do it. And I'll explain next week the reason for doing this, why I sat and waited on, on trying to do these shows and, and left Knoxville sitting there for three weeks in early December. We're also going to look ahead at some of the fantastic talent that's going to start arriving in Southeastern in early 1976. Uh, we're about to get the thing off the ground to where... It's going to become a territory. It's going to start running six nights a week. And we're going to start making a real reputation for ourselves. All right. Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Our producer is Lou Kippelman. I am Jeff Bowdrin for Ron Fuller. Next week, the ride continues. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.